This is certainly an interesting topic. Is it okay to ever check your partner's phone? It's a form of cheating. And here's what's interesting. I found that Neil Strauss, the former world's greatest pickup artist, best-selling author. He opens up about cheating, monogamy, whose work is insightful and controversial. Do you think it's natural to be faithful to one person? In my research, the most evolutionary argument that made the most sense was that we're wired to cheat after about seven years. That said, I realized that all relationship issues are historical. For example, I hurt someone I loved all for a sexual experience that wasn't that great. Went to a sex addiction rehab. And then the therapist said, the reason you've never been in a healthy relationship is because your mother wants to be in a relationship with you. My mom never approved of a single person I dated. When I wanted to live with my girlfriend, my mom cut me off. She'd come in my room and tell me about how horrible my dad was. And I was the only one who understood her. So you grew up trapped. We call that emotional incest. And then what happens as soon as you're in a relationship, you want to escape. And having that outlet of cheating or drugs means that we're not just trapped with this one person. And how does one go about unwiring that? These little things program us, so you got to disengage it. And so what works is... The people that really are struggling to find that love, what advice do you give to them? People have this fantasy about what they want, but you're going to attract someone who's at your level of growth and self-esteem. Everyone who has that list of, this is what I'm looking for, make that list for yourself and become that person, and then you'll meet that person. That's like just 100% true. What do you think about masturbation? I like how you just asked that question. Just, I've never shared this. I'll probably regret it. I did an experiment once, so... I find it incredibly fascinating that when we look at the back end of Spotify and Apple and our audio channels, the majority of people that watch this podcast haven't yet hit the follow button or the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this. I would like to make a deal with you. If you could do me a huge favour and hit that subscribe button, I will work tirelessly from now until forever to make the show better and better and better and better. I can't tell you how much it helps when you hit that subscribe button. The show gets bigger, which means we can expand the production, bring in all the guests you want to see and continue to doing this thing we love if you could do me that small favor and hit the follow button wherever you're listening to this that would mean the world to me that is the only favor i will ever ask you thank you so much for your time back to this episode neil i first came across your work when i was i'm gonna say 17 years old your book was the first book I ever read without moving from the moment I opened it. The book, for, obviously the book covers the life of pickup artists and you kind of go on that journey with them and then you kind of shine a light on that world. But for me, what the book taught me was a lot about human psychology and that human psychology was even quite a significant thing in life, business and everything in between and relationships. And then I read your second book, some years later, called The Truth. And again, this book changed my life, but for very different reasons. For reasons centered around the fact that I was struggling in relationships, I was struggling with commitment. I thought that a relationship was prison. Um, and your book, The Truth, gave me an olive branch that maybe I was wrong. And it yeah. showed me sort of a, gave me a mental model to redefine how I saw relationships. There's a lot of people struggling with relationships. Yeah. I mean, that's why I wrote it. I was one of those people. Give me a little bit of an overview of your story up until, up until writing The Truth. I think we're really similar. We were talking a little bit before the show in terms of like being a late bloomer, in terms of relationships and commitment and freedom being important and all those kind of criteria. I just thought you kind of think everything's normal and everyone else is strange and you're normal until you like hit a bottom and something goes wrong. And, and for me, what happened was, I mean, it's super vulnerable to share, even though it's in the truth, but it's weird to say it in, in person. I was dating 
someone who I thought, oh, this is more serious relationship. Uh, maybe this could go the long way. And then I cheated on them. And sadly, people usually don't learn a lesson when they cheat. They learn the lesson when they get caught. So I got caught. And and then then you face the reality. That's when the compartment breaks down in your mind and you face the, your, the consequences of what you've done. And, you know, her being smart was like, I'm done with you. You cheated on me. You betrayed me. Goodbye. Good, which is good for her. And I felt like just wrecked. I felt just, you know, I wrecked it. I hurt someone I loved and cared about. I destroyed the, my chances for the future that I wanted to have, all for like a sexual experience that wasn't that great anyway. Uh, so, and this is in the book, so his names are so, so Rick Rubin, the producer, the music producer, who's kind of been a mentor to me. He almost produces my life like the way he literally produced my life, like the way he produced a record where I'm living, uh, everything. He's, he's uh, someone who can just, the way he looks at music, he can look at your life and see what your logical fallacies are. So he said, like, maybe you're a sex addict. I'm like, well, what do you mean? It's not like I need to have sex all the time. I'm not addicted to it. I'm not like out there doing crazy things. He's like, well, I mean, hey, look at all the stuff you did in the game. Did that make you happy? You know, you got everything you wanted. Did that make you happy? And now you're, you hurt someone you cared about for a sexual experience. Maybe you are a sex addict. And we literally argued back and forth about that for months till he was ready to give up on me. And then I said, I don't know, but I'll tell you what, I'll go, I'll go to, re I'll go to sex addiction rehab because it's not going to hurt. I'll, I'll, I'll learn something. And I went there very cynically into, into, sec, into sex addiction rehab. And we do something, we did something called like a timeline where you write down your most, and you can do this at home. It's a useful thing to do to write down your most impactful experiences, positive or negative in your first 17 or 18 years. And you kind of write them out. I was going for my positive and negative experiences. And then the therapist goes, well, you know, the reason you've never been in a healthy relationship I'm like, no, why? Because everything either I cheated or someone cheated on me or they just didn't work out. And I go, no, why? She goes, well, it's because your mother wants to be in a relationship with you. And exactly that look you just had was exactly what I had. I'm like, what are you talking about? But logically, but in my body, like everything when it passed made sense. And then she said, and this was like a little intense. She's like, there's a word for that. We call that emotional incest. And I was like, what the fuck is that? Like, but it, almost like I'm feeling it now. Like I felt this whole, like this cold wind blow through like my entire soul. And like my body recognized the truth that she was right. Like, why did my mom never prove a single person I dated? Why was I grounded for most of my high school life? Why, when I wanted to live with my first girlfriend, did my mom cut me off and say I wasn't allowed to do that, even though I was like, you know, 19 or 20 or something like that. Like, it's insane. You know, why would I sit while we're watching TV and like massage her. It's fucking creepy, but like <laughs> massage her hands and shit like that. Like literally, and why would she come in my room and tell me about like, you know, how horrible my dad was and I was the only one who understood her. Like, yes, you're like, it, it's crazy. And so, so once I recognized the truth of that, all of a sudden, like it just, it was never the same again. Basically, there's like three types of parenting, right? Um, this is, see, there's functional parenting, which is just a parent that takes care of a child's needs. There's abandonment when a parent's not there for the child's emotional or physical, you know, emotional or physical needs or the parent's gone. It can be abandonment even if a parent dies when you're very young. You don't know that. that you, sometimes you might think that's about you. Then there's enmeshment, which is like most people don't know and don't recognize. Um, 
which is when a parent's, when your job is to take care of your parents' needs. Ah, okay. When you kind of start parenting them or taking care of them. Yes, or, or instead of making choices about what are best for you, they're making choices about what's best for them. So simple version is you're taking care of them. In fact, you can see people who are adults and they call their mom or dad every single day and are always there for the problems that their parents are having and feel guilty if they're not. But then it can be more subtle, like maybe a parent's really anxious and you need to be home and close by and do all these things. But it's not for you to be a better child. It's for them to be less anxious and less worried. So a sign that enmeshment is, incur- is occurring is if, uh, if you grew up feeling sorry for a parent. We're born with kind of all our brain cells, but the neural connections aren't made, right? And in our early, early childhood experiences, all that wiring is being put together. So they're like our programmers, right? Mm-hmm. Like they literally just programmed us. So these little things program us. And uh, this woman, uh, Pia Melody, she's brilliant. Uh, she has this great therapy um, called post-induction therapy, uh, PIT. And she thinks, of your chi- she thinks of your childhood as a hypnosis. And she's trying to wake you up from that hypnosis. And it's such a great way to think about it that we're really indoctrinated into this cult as children, right? <laughs> like, and that cult is our family, our family values, the family system, the way it is, mom, dad, like we have nothing else. And that shapes the wiring of our brain. And then as adults, so much of our journey is to like, just wake up. So how does that all come back around to this sex addiction? So if you grow up uh, enmeshed with a parent, um, well, what happens as soon as you're in a relationship again? You feel trapped. And that trappedness reminds you of? Your parents. Your parents in your childhood. And so what do you want to do when you're trapped? Fly, escape. Exactly. You want to escape. And how do we escape? Cheating. Exactly. Interesting that cheating is a a path to escaping. That's quite interesting. Yeah, and it doesn't have to, it's like, it's almost like a, and by the way, it's not cheat. Some people will act out in some other way. It could be some other type of a type of escape. Uh, But often it's cheating because we feel trapped again and we feel, uh, we just want to pop a hole in that uh, like plastic bag overhead before we suffocate and having that outlet of just cheating or fantasy or drugs or whatever it is, like something there, like just, helps us escape and not feel trapped. We have our own separate life or we're not just trapped with this one person. It's scary. We feel this like terror. I mean, sometimes like before I did all this work, like my uh, girlfriend would like hug me um, and I'd like to feel like my skin crawl. I just feel trapped. And like, she just loves me, doesn't hug me, but I feel like, just like I wanted to escape. See, I can relate in, in a way because I remember when I would pursue someone that I was attracted to when I was, up until the age I'd say about 22 and the minute they showed an interest in me I would kind of like dissuade them from wanting to be be with me so I would pursue them then once they were interested in me I'd dissuade them I I would get like my skin would crawl when they showed interest in me I really had to do a lot of work to get rid of that yeah like I was I had an allergic reaction to someone being interested in me yeah it's that exact same thing it's like And so that's why a lot of people who are avoidance don't recognize their avoidance. They're like, no, I want love. I want to be in love. That's like my whole goal in life. But yeah, how does it feel when someone actually returns your love powerfully? And how does one go about unwiring that or unlearning those limiting beliefs? I'll give it to you in the, 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 in the way that I think is like the most effective. The first step to heal is humility. Like the number one thing you need is humility. And as someone once told me, the same brain that got you into this problem isn't going to get you out of it. And a lot of people think, well, if I read books and I write books, I love books and I listen to podcasts and I love podcasts and do podcasts as well. But 
just taking in information, you're not gonna, you need, you need really humility to say, shoot, I don't know the answers. And you just surrender to, a, to, a, to an expert and just say, I know nothing. That's why we're talking before the podcast about AA. And the first step is realizing we were powerless. And I think that humility is the first step to change. And it's, man, it's a hell of a step because it's hard for people to really mm. be humble in this world and say, I don't know. So from there, this is the three things and I think they work in combination. I really think this is the formula. I'd love if the therapy model was redone around this, which is one is you need deep, intensive workshops where you're that, where you're really like a, an emotional puddle on the ground crying. This stuff came in emotionally and I think it can only heal emotionally. I think anyone who's listening or maybe even yourself, if you had a moment that really changed, it's something you felt emotionally. It wasn't, oh, if, you, if there's an idea and you're like, oh, I get it. It's just a behavioral problem and then you change it. The things that you understand and you keep making the same mistake, uh, you know, as they call it an NLP uh, uh, conscious incompetence, those are the things where it takes something deeper. So, so deep, intensive, emotional workshop. And then everyone goes to these things. The Hoffman process, for example, is very pop popular right now. Have you heard of that? Yeah, I have. I'm one of sure my friends put it into the group chat the other day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's powerful. It's great. Uh, what the Survivors Program at the Meadows or it's the Rio Retreat Center is, is amazing um, or therapeutic. But there are a bunch of... So you go to these, what always happens or even after any kind of seminar is you leave, you're like, this is amazing. I totally get it. I see who I am. I'm going to go live my best life now. And then you get around the same environment and the same behavioral patterns start, you know, sneaking back in and you're back to where you started. So you need the big shift and then you need something for maintenance. That's where talk therapy comes in. So step one, deep workshop. Step two is some kind of ongoing maintenance. Uh, and here's something I recommend. And it's also cheaper, I think, than therapy. Not everyone can afford to see a therapist every week. So you need something that where every week or every couple of weeks, your wrong thinking is corrected. So as an example, I got a bunch of guys together in my neighborhood, different men are at the same level in life. Uh, and we all chipped in for one therapist. So instead of you buying a therapist, five, six, 10 of your friends can chip out on a therapist. You can do that, you know, skip, skip a few coffees a week. And then we meet every week. We've done this for probably since my, you know, seven years now, same, almost, almost the exact same group of people. A few people have come in and out and every week we go in there and here's my group therapy, I think, and a lot of research backs this up actually. Um, but research can back anything up, um, is that, uh, that it works be better than one-on-one -on -one therapy is if you, you're having a discussion with me or a ther therapist, you can just say, well, I think you're wrong. I disagree. Even though you don't have a degree, I disagree. But if that therapist and like eight of your friends all say, no, man, you're wrong. You're like, I disagree. But if you all say so, you're probably right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll consider that. So I think it's really powerful. And the other great thing is you don't have to wait every week or every two weeks to see a therapist. You're in touch with all your friends. Like you said about your group chat, you're in touch with all your friends all the time. So, so group therapy, like for example, we know each other's patterns. So I could be in my therapy thing and, and start to say something like I'm starting to see this person and this is going on. And right away, they'd be like, oh man, you're doing that same thing you did with your last two people you started dating. Why don't you try this new thing? They see you so well. So deep shift, ongoing maintenance. That's where the talk therapy comes in. Then the third thing is tools to use when you're backsliding. As an example, we talked earlier about how someone would, uh, I get hugged by my girlfriend and I'd start to feel that, what you said, that same feeling like I just felt like uncomfortable and wanted to escape. So the tool there was something called reparenting, 
reparenting is being the, is like talking to your, talking to your inner child or talking to yourself. And I just say, hey, she's not your mom. You can relax. I got this. I'll take care of you. She just loves you and cares about you. And man, accept that. So I'll just give myself that inner monologue. And why, and, why do you think that works? The reparenting or the yeah, tools? The reparenting part. Yeah, I think the reparenting part is this. Like there's inner child's kind of like a word that if you haven't done the inner child work, just sounds like so woo-woo. So another way to think about it is this. When you see something that's familiar that traumatized you as a child or a teen, right away, your protective mechanisms from then are going to take over. So you got you to gotta like disengage it. And so what works is saying, it works is recognizing it and saying like, no, this isn't that. This is actually okay. So you can relax and just accept. Love. And that's all quite unconscious, isn't it? So you won't consciously know that the reason this hug with this person is giving me the, the like the heebie-jeebies or the creeps, whatever, um, is because it reminds me of my mother or whatever, whatever. But unconsciously, that's what, kind of what's going on. The old circuits are starting to fire, but you're, you haven't had a thought yourself. You're just experiencing a feeling. Like I would experience that feeling of feeling like I was trapped, yeah. but I wouldn't consciously know why. You wouldn't know, no, of course. No, you would have no idea. You'd literally yeah. just think I'm trapped. And that's why these things all work together. So like the package, the short version of it, because the long answer is deep intensive workshops, uh, ongoing maintenance through group or talk therapy and tools to use when the old behaviors come up. So once you've done that deep intensive workshop and recognize, oh shoot, I, re I react like this because... I'm getting flashbacks to being like suffocated by my mom or my dad, then you're now you're conscious about what's happening. Mm -hmm. And then as you consistently use the tools, it's you, you, you get to intervene quickly, right? So mm -hmm. the key is like intervening quickly. I'll give another example that a lot of people might relate to is like when you're in a conflict or you're uh, starting to get upset about something, right? And then if you just, stay there, you might start to get upset or behave in a way that you don't love. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Or, 100%. Yeah. So what you want to do is start recognizing the signs of, oh, my heart's starting to beat fast, or I feel like maybe there's something you feel in your chest or in your arms. For me, like my arms start to get like, I feel like, a, uh, I don't know, just sort of like a weird tension in my hands. As soon as I feel that, I'll just say, hey, one second, I'll be right back. I'll step back, bring myself back to earth, and then come back and I'll never react. So I think one of our goals, I think the goal of self-improvement of this work is to be like non-reactive, connected, but non-reactive. Masturbation. Yeah. What do you yeah. think about masturbation? I did an experiment once because like there were a lot of people who, Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins, for example, like doesn't let his band like have an orgasm the day of a show or something like that. Um, I think Darren, I not, some director, I don't want to say his name wrong, uh, uh, felt like there are all these kind of artists who I was talking to who by not having an orgasm felt like they could use it. And I think Napoleon Hill and Think and Grow Rich or something talks about just not letting the energy out and then kind of recycling and using it for productivity in your life. And I'm sure a lot of tantric uh, and other teachings say the same. So I tried an experiment of not doing that. I just felt horrible and I was attracted to everything. I remember watching South Park and like Cartman's mom came on and like, and I felt like aroused. I was literally like... <laughs> what chapter of your life was this in? This was like in a pre-truth. Okay. So the answer is like, I don't, maybe I'm not there yet, but I don't have a strong, I think that as long as it's not compulsive, uh, as long as it's not changing your 
your healthy relationship with women or sexuality. And there's a difference between masturbation and pornography. Pornography is, yeah. what's your view on pornography? Um, I don't think it helps. Yeah. But, well, but here's, here's a, let me give you the last thought on masturbation. This is like a crazy thought. I've never shared this. I'll probably regret it. I'll probably call you later and ask you to cut it out. But, but I, I think that everything in your life, I think you can be giving yourself a seminar in your life all the time. Mm. So <laughs> um, maybe we'll end here. So, but, uh, but when, but I try. I almost think of it as training. So if I'm going to do it, I'll just think, okay, my goal is to like last longer or try to like do it twice or something. So I try to think of everything. How can I, even with that, I'm like, how can I train myself to be better? Interesting. And so I'm always thinking, even in my life, on like, how can I, how can, so a lot of people talk about the, even I mentioned this kind of cliche of the authentic self versus the false self. Mm -hmm. And I always think like, shit, what is authentic? How can I measure authentic? I don't know what's authentic. I think I'm, when I was really inauthentic, I thought I was being authentic. And I realized that a better dichotomy is the creative versus the destructive self. So like if you're watching pornography and then masturbating and like, do you feel better afterward? Was it constructive for you or was it destructive? And so trying to do things that are constructive feels right. It's not just an excuse though for a destructive behavior. Go ahead. What do you mean? So is it, so in the context of masturbation, you're giving it some kind of purpose by saying it's like training. Yeah. I might just, I might just so sort just, of deluding myself by giving yeah. myself an excuse. This is okay. Um, I guess the answer is like you, by, you know, you know, the seed by the fruit. So to see if it hurts in my relationship by sexuality or my relationship with women and things like that. I, I, what about pornography then? Do you think pornography is, is, is harmful um, for relationships, love? I guess, the, I guess the answer again is like, it depends on how you're using it. I don't know. I haven't really thought this out. And there are True. certainly a lot of studies that show the opposite of pornography. But I think if you're, if it's just becoming regularly and it's, you're doing it too much, or I'm sure you can use pornography in a healthy way with your partner and watching together and maybe getting turned on and then experiencing something together or mixing it up sometimes. And I'm sure there are ways, I think everything can be healthy and unhealthy. You can drink too much water and die. Do you think it's natural to be faithful to one person for life? In all my research, I think the person who came up with what I think is the most evolutionary uh, argument that made the most sense was Helen Fisher. Uh, and she's an evolutionary biologist, I believe. And she said that she thinks it's natural to, uh, um, and she studied marriage patterns, divorce patterns, and this changes based on the number of kids, but where she, she believes we're wired for seven years for um, serial monogamy with clandestine adultery. What is That's that? what she says, meaning serial monogamy means one partner at a time, but secretly cheating sometimes on the side. That's how she thinks we're wired. And that the average is about seven years. If you have more kids, that lasts longer, meaning that's enough time for the child to grow up and kind of take care of itself. And then you get to, you know, have new children with someone else and vary your genes. That said, that's like the evolutionary perspective. That said, I don't believe like evolution is destiny. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. probably evolutionary for people to want to take someone's, usurp someone's power and money. And I don't know. I'm sure there are all kinds of evolutionary impulses that we have a prefrontal cortex that allows us to make these choices. I mean, if we had to do everything, I think you have a choice whether you want to be faithful or not. That said, fidelity is different than honesty. Meaning that I think you can be honest with your partner. And for example, I know people whose partner, maybe the partner went through menopause and sex stopped. 
And they had a discussion and said, like, I still have these sexual needs. What do I do about it? And they renegotiated the relationship, you know? And some, so I think that we can rethink a relationship as an ongoing discussion between two partners and probably the partner with the lowest comfort will generally win out. I talked to this woman, Stephanie Kuntz, who's like the biggest expert on marriage. She wrote a book on it. And she said the history of marriage was originally, it was, you know, for property rights and inheritance and kids were just extra workers, you know? And then, um, and then it was marriage for love was this radical idea. And she says, now we're in this thing where it's just, you know, tick a box. Like I was at a dinner the other day and a bunch of people were there talking about their relationships. And someone's like, well, I'm gonna have a kid, but I'm freezing my eggs. I wanna have a kid later and, and I'm gonna do this. And someone else is like, I'm never, I wanna get married and fall in love and have kids. And it's like a tick a box thing. Do you want one partner or many? You know, do you want to, you know, uh, a lot of people are into, you know, ethical non-monogamy now. Uh, do you want kids? Do you not want kids? Um, you can just check a box and decide. And we're in this way where we have so much choice. Ethical non-monogamy. Yeah. I didn't know that was a thing. Now. Yes. What yeah. does that mean? Some people call it consensual non-monogamy or ethical non-monogamy, but that's basically you're, you're uh, not monogamous with your relationship partner, but you're ethical, meaning you're both honest about it. Ah, okay. Yeah. You, as you said earlier, you went on a journey to figure out whether that stuff could work for you, like polyamorous relationships swinging all of those kinds of things and you concluded that it just it couldn't work for you i think you re i remember you saying that you kind of wanted like a half open relationship at the time i think most people probably do i think that was probably coming out of like a that was me coming out of a wounded place saying that by half open you mean like i get to do what i want and they don't yeah. or something yeah. i think that usually whoever says that and i including myself at the time is probably like a wounded person, like in terms of like, I just want to do what I want, but I want to deal with uncomfortable, and I, you deal with those uncomfortable emotions, but, but, but you can't do what you want because I can't deal with uncomfortable emotions. Mm. So, so I think that the answer is, I think there's like three entities. There's you, there's your partner, and there's a relationship. And I think the right answer is something that makes all three better. So for example, when I was in those scenes, there were a lot of couples and it wasn't, a, sometimes it was the woman leading the charge, sometimes it was the, the guy leading the charge where one partner was letting the other partner be more open so they didn't lose them. And okay. they were just silently suffering. That's not good for the person or the, or the relationship. But I think if you can find a way where like, for example, um, one person I met, he like, he thinks his partner's fabulous and other men get into, should, he shouldn't just get to hog all that fabulousness to himself. Like he wants to share that. Other people can get to experience that. And so that's right for him and right for her and right for their relationship. And you've met people that are in that, that sort of polyamorous situation that are like really, really, really happy. Yeah. And here's what's interesting. I found that just as many people cheated in polyamorous relationships is monogamous relationships. And I'll give you an example. Like one of the first people I met, like maybe they have a boundary like, oh, you're not allowed to do this specific sexual thing with other people. You're not allowed to do this, like they would still break. They can literally do like 95% of what they want and 5% is restricted and they'll cross that boundary. I found just as much cheating in that as monogamous. And the idea being that, the idea really being if you're healthy, whatever relationship you choose will be healthy. If you're unhealthy, whatever relationship style you choose will be unhealthy. And maybe there was something in just breaking the boundary that people find somewhat appealing. So it doesn't really matter what the boundary is, but there being one, you're going back to that, avoidant nature of trying to stop yourself from being a bird trapped in a cage. Yeah. Just breaking a boundary is part of the, the thrill. 
Yeah, there's someone I met, probably the wisest person I met, I forget his full name, his name was Pepper. And he had two big thoughts. And one was that intentions are better than rules. And then his second thought was your partner has to have an abundance of you before they can sort of be with other people. So uh, explain both of those then. Sure. Sure. The intention is like, well, what are our intentions? To, to honor each other, to be honest, uh, to respect, and to have sort of intentions, which are discussion points um, versus, well, you can do that, but you can't do this. And behind it, those rules is an intention. For example, what's behind the discomfort of someone sleeping with someone else is the intention is safety. I feel unsafe if you're off with someone else uh, because I could lose you. And so the intention maybe might is safety and maybe there are other ways to get that need met. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, as a short guy who, who's like literally like five, six and you, you know, and people are always looking for someone who's like six feet or over a guy and you're like, oh man, I'm like six inches below the mark. I realized, oh no, what they want is like safety there or security being with someone who feels bigger or stronger, helps them feel safe. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, I can do safe. I can't do tall, but I can do safe. Interesting. So, um, so so that's the idea of intentions. Then the idea of a partner has abundance of you means a lot of people are like, this relationship isn't working. We're fighting a lot. Like maybe we should split up, but maybe let's try polyamory. That's not going to work versus, or it's just, if your partner has enough sex, has enough love, has enough connection, and then you're with someone else, there's less of that fear because they're full. Your partner should be full first. Mm. Third thing, for people who are considering doing this in case they're, they're, I'm sure some people are like thinking maybe this will work for me. And is it's, I think it's called the burning period, which is that if you do open up a monogamous, open up a relationship, there's probably, there's a period of six months or whatever that you, there's a lot of discomfort and awkwardness and it requires a lot of communication to work through it. A lot of insecurity, I imagine. Yeah. Our biggest fear as a child is abandonment because what happens if our parents out there, we, don't get milk or water or food and we die. We can't take care of ourselves. And so we're fear of abandonment. A great, a great line from the truth. Was my, I think about this all the time when people are scared in a relationship about being abandoned. This therapist uh, named Lorraine said, um, unless you're a child or a dependent elder, no one can abandon you except yourself. And you're like, you're not going to die if the person you love leaves you. It's just going to hurt and suck. Right. <laughs> That's how it feels, right? On a psychological level, it feels like we are being... Because that that emotional reaction stems, I guess, right back to like, I don't know, being thrown off the island by our tribe or something. And and when we think about the physiological consequence of loneliness as well, like the body completely changes. We go into self-preservation. We don't sleep as well. Just when we're... And that's just when we're lonely. So... Yeah, no, you nailed it. I think there's two sides. There's the abandonment. Like if a child's abandoned, uh, maybe that child doesn't survive. And that's obviously happened to us children historically. And then the other side, like you said, if you're kicked out of the tribe, and this is why people are so fearful on social media and all these things, you're kicked out of the tribe, well, you can't survive on your own out in the wild. So we are afraid of abandonment and social rejection. There's abandonment and social rejection and loneliness. Your your first book, The Game, I think, I think it spoke to some men who feel that way. Like, because I think those men, I think I was probably, maybe I was one of them where I was a young man who wanted to figure out how to be loved. And the, the game appeared to give me a code to that. In a, in a world where figuring out how to be loved and finding someone to love me was kind of this like 
complicated, you know, thing that didn't make sense. And I reflect on where, I don't know how many years we were on from the game now, maybe 10 years or something. But in terms of men feeling like they understand what masculinity is and loneliness and the statistics around the amount of men that are sexless, um, we've gone in a worse direction. Like there are more men now that feel isolated, lonely, that are struggling to find uh, love and a partner. We've had dating apps emerge, I think, since the game, pretty much yeah. sure since, yeah, the game, since the game, which has confused the whole dynamic of how do I find someone that loves me? Where do I find them? Um, it's roughly about 50% of people now meet online. So there's this new generation of men and women that are struggling now to find to find that love. Yeah, it's interesting. Like you raise this question, like why is it when we're more connected than ever that we feel more disconnected? Mm -hmm. I think that maybe one of the issues, I think it's really tough to all be connected because we thought that technology would, with this idea of the global village, Marshall McLuhan and stuff like that, technology is going to just create a global village, which it did, but we forgot that the village, it sucked to live in the village because <laughs> in the village, everybody's gossiping. You know, if you step out of line, you're, at least we were saying earlier, you're kicked out of the village. Everyone tries to keep everyone down because it's petty and it's jealous. And if you're different or express yourself in some other way, uh, you're like an outcast. It used to be that, you know, if you left high school, went to college or moved somewhere else, you get to just create a whole new life. And now we're all in this fishbowl staring at each other and it's uncomfortable and maybe feels less safe. On top of that, I think there's some statistic uh, a few years ago that 25% of marriages start in the workplace and now you can't really date in the workplace anymore. So that's kind of off yes. the table now. Yeah. And then I think the other thing is uh, people, I noticed that on the apps, um, people sort of have this fantasy about what they want and then they might be with someone, start dating a few times and say, oh, you know, that one thing's just not quite right in what I want. And, and there's so, so much abundance that they can just go back the dating pool instead of working working it through or, or 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 writing it out. In other words, before you bet someone out, you exchange phone numbers. That was like exciting thing. You got the phone number and gosh, well, man, should I call? I guess I'll wait two days to call. And then you call and oh my God, I'm gonna see him in four days. And mm -hmm. you know, and and there's so much excitement around that. And now you literally just you like you go back on one of these apps and within like 24 hours, you have so many options. In your in the last two decades, you've met so many people that are like struggling in relationships and love. And I guess my question is like, what advice do you give to them? The people that really, really are struggling. And it's different issues for men and women because there's, there's different dating dynamics in play there. So for, for those, let's start with men. For those young men, and I've had many guests on the podcast talk to those, speak of the statistics around young men and also to, around the suicidality of those young men and, um, I mean, some of the really crazy stats are around suicide. I think I've shared a few times before that in the UK alone, someone dies by suicide every 90 minutes wow. and 76% of them are male. Um, look at some of the other stats. The number of unmarried men in the United States has increased by 50% since 1970. The number of men who are reporting that they are lonely has increased by 50% since 1980. The number of men who have had Sex by the age of 20 has decreased by 20% since 1990. The age men have their first kiss is now getting later and later. The number of men who are reporting that they have been victims of um, sexual assault by another man has increased by 
So the stats tell a pretty horrific story. And then the same, the same here for women. In 1970, only 13% of women over 30 were unmarried. Today, that number is nearly 50%. The divorce rate for women over 30 has doubled in the past 50 years. And I can go on and on and on. So clearly there's something going on with relationships, dating. Let's, let's, let's hold two ideas. One is there's something going on and the other one is stats. So mm-hmm. when, I wrote, when I wrote The Truth, I went through, like I started the book with these with similar stats, you know, 50% of marriages and a divorce. But I'm like, I got my start, one of my starts is like a fact checker at The Village Voice before I was like writing these books and things. Um, and so I'm like, I just really rigorously check facts. If you really dig deep, you'll find that probably 50% of statistics are made up. You'll, you'll literally, to the degree that most of them, I couldn't keep the stats because either they didn't, they'd never existed. In one case, we call the actual researcher, um, I think the divorce stat or the infidelity stat. And they're like, she's like, I never said this. This is not for my research. My name's always attached to this. That I don't know how to stop it. Mm. So, so what happens? So a lot of these things, first of all, but I think the sense of all this is very true. I'd be slow to jump on a stat. It's funny. I did a piece for Rolling Stone on, on Elon Musk and similar thing happened where I told him the statistic and he's like, I'd have to see how they did that study before I could even comment on it. Mm. That said, I think we're in a crisis. I think what we're speaking of is a, like we, we're really like, there's a, <clears throat> there's a real mental health crisis. And if you think about when you were a kid, like how often did you have doctor's appointments? Gosh, not often, um, but may, I don't know, maybe twice a year. Well, yeah, twice a year and have dentist appointments. The same, I think twice a year. And how often did you have like therapist or psychologist appointments? Oh, n- 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 exactly, right? And that's our culture. Our culture is your teeth better look great. Got to make sure everything physically is fine. Um, but no concern for mental health, no teaching of mental health. No, so we have no foundation to build on. And then we get to our age where all those wiring and all those patterns are set and either, and then if we want to heal, we better have a lot of money because it's, it's a rich person's game to heal because insurance and nothing covers it. So like, we really want to work on this. And again, like if I could be sort of a crusader, maybe I should be, I don't know, maybe I need to be, uh, is it, it would be for taking like mental health as seriously as we take physical health. Cause guess what? Obviously, stress leads to all kinds of diseases, and also so many, so much self harm and other harm are, are related to obviously mental health issues. And then we have this idea, that, and we all have some sort of mental health issue, you know, like everyone does. And if you don't think you have a mental health issue, there's something going on, you know. Look in the mirror. We're still we're all wounded from the way we were raised. So, so we really need to get the culture and the system to take mental health as serious as they take all the rest of education. But we're clearly just finding it harder just to meet each other as well. Yeah, there's a great, there's a Japanese writer named Kobo Abe, and he he wrote this Women in the Dunes, which is a great book and and movie. He has this great line. He says like, he goes, we're wired for this tribal existence. And the city is the first place where we had to meet a stranger that's not an enemy. And we're still not used to that. Strangers are scary. I think most people, people are scary. I mean, even now back in the dating thing, I'm like, I'm meeting someone on an app and I don't know who they are. Like before, if I met someone, they were kind of in my scene or in my peer group or somehow we share these interests, but there's just a random person on an app that literally like, maybe they're a scammer, right? Mm. Are you are you in that phase now where you're you're dating again? Yeah. How's it going? And what's, what's, uh, what's new in terms of like, 
since last time you were in the in a dating uh, phase of your life? Let's see. I, I just ended like a like a short but serious relationship, which was interesting. Um, and I, yeah, I guess what's new is just the things we things we talk we talked about. I think I'm I'm with my son like Fridays to Mondays, so so it's hard. I think it's hard for someone who's not a single parent um, or doesn't have a child to uh, sort of understand that maybe I'm less available. Mm-hmm. You can react one of two ways when you recognize you're getting older, right? You can go buy a flashy car and start dating like you know people who feed your ego and you can just feed your ego till you're dead. And that seems like a horrible way to go. I remember my first time in LA, like when I moved to LA, I was at this like nightclub and there was this guy in a wheelchair with a uh, older, with a mask to breathe. He was like very old, like 70 or 80. I don't know. He was, he was at death's door and he was surrounding. He had these like two, like, you know, very pla- young plastic surgery women around him. And I'm like, oh man, like, you know, I don't know whether to feel sorry for him or, or what, but I was like, oh, that's, that's like, that's, I guess that's his life choice and, and, and good for him, you know? Um, some, so you can kind of chase that validation. He liked dating multiple women because he liked women competing over him. That felt good when there was drama, like it made him feel wanted. So you can live, basically you're living out of your unhealed wounds, mm-hmm. right? You can either live out of your unhealed wounds or you can sort of heal your wound and see what else am I here to heal or what else am I here to do? Um, what's gonna... What are the few things that make me happy and the few things I can contribute? I've got close friends of mine that um, feel somewhat similar from conversations we've had with them where they're in a relationship with someone and it's almost like they're torn into two pieces. It kind of takes me back to maybe the start of your journey into the truth, which is they love this person, but at the same time, they just can't stop the urge to be with to either cheat or think about other people or to text other people, et cetera. And they're almost tormented by it. Yeah. I know some people that are like really tormented by that. Yeah. Then you have to look at yourself. And I do this all the time is what parts coming out of a wound and what parts like authentic. Right. So there's one part where, yeah, other people are attractive. Like if you're in a relationship and you find other people attractive or hot or like, might even think someone's a better match for you. Like that's healthy. You still have eyes. You still have a comparing mind a mm-hmm. little bit. And it that's takes okay. the right person. What's that? Does it take the right person in your view to make you commit? It takes commit. you being the right person. Okay. It takes you a hundred percent takes you being the right person. And even to the degree that you're going to attract people, you're going to attract someone who's at your level of growth and self-esteem. So like literally everyone who has that list of this is what I'm looking for. Like, make that list for yourself and become that person. And then you'll meet that person. That's like just a hundred percent true. And, but, but then the other side, like you said, then there's the part where it's agonizing, where it's like, oh God, I, I mean, I can speak from experience that once I did all that work, we talked about in the truth. I was like really happily monogamous with Ingrid. Like I didn't look at other people. I didn't chase that other stuff. Like everything was clean. What changed? Um, what changed was I wasn't afraid of going deeper into intimacy anymore. Uh, meaning that, uh, that, that like, like I would just look at her and and I wasn't, I just had walls up that kept me from getting closer. That of really loving her and really accepting her. So you can either do the work with another person or you can do the work against that person. And against that person is acting out and fantasizing in your head and resenting. 
Or the other thing is you can work on yourself and work on how can I get deeper with them and how can I learn to accept them and <clears throat> how can I realize the issues I have with them have nothing to do with them. There's a saying, I'm pretty sure it's a saying, but that all relationship issues are historical. Like it's not about them. It's about something that happened with mom or dad. And the things you're trying to change and fix were things that uh, you needed from your parents. How important do you think it is to be completely honest in a relationship? I.e. your partner should have the <laughs> pin for your mobile phone or there should be no <laughs> pin on your mobile phone. That complete honesty where they are able to see and know everything. Yeah, good, great, great, great question. I think... The ultimate balance is they have the pin for your mobile phone, but they never use it. Checking your partner's mobile phone behind their back is a form of cheating. And I think a relationship needs both honesty and trust to work. Honesty means one partner's being honest, but if the other partner just trusts, it's going to go just as badly. Do you think that if you cheat on someone and they, and they never find out, do you think... What is the harm to you? So if you, if you cheat on someone, the harm to you is all of a sudden you've taken the relationship and you just like drove a cleaver through it and now you're living in a separate world than they are. You can't get back to the same intimacy that you had before because intimacy is showing who you are and your vulnerabilities to someone else and being accepted. Right then, you're lying in bed, you're thinking about that other person, you're worried about them texting, you start being a bit different, a little differently around your partner. They sense that and they feel like something's wrong. Maybe it's wrong with them and they behave different. And it sets, it sets off a whole, you know, invisible chain into motion. And you can never authentically connect whilst you're cheating on someone. If you're cheating on them, you can never really, it's not a real connection, is it? You're hiding, you're hiding and compartmentalizing something. It's Some people are so good, they hide it from themselves. Yeah. You know, there's a great line. This is also from Rick Rubin. He said, it's in the book. So he said, um, I don't trade long-term happiness for short-term pleasure. I don't trade long-term happiness for short-term pleasure. Interesting. Right? It's really good. And I hear, so I get, became of the mind of this, which is in terms of guys like you and I and other mesh and women too who feel trapped in their relationship is, I recognize that they're not keeping me from sleeping with anyone else. I can actually go ahead and sleep with whoever I want. I really can. I'm there. I can sleep with whoever I want, but I have to be honest and accept the consequences. So if sleeping with that person is more important than my relationship, I'm free to sleep with them. It's actually my choice. So no one's being, you're not being made to do or forced to do anything. It's all your choice. You just have to accept the consequences that, well, that sex with that person better be more important than your relationship. Mm. And so you can still, no one's keeping you from doing anything. You made an agreement. If you don't like that agreement, then make a different agreement for your relationship. Just a quick interruption for a brand that is very close to us here at The Diary of a CEO who are sponsoring this episode of this podcast, and that is British Airways. If you're like me and you love a good deal, I think you're going to want to hear about this. The British Airways business class sale is in full swing, and the potential savings are Enormous. We're talking savings of up to £1,000 on a return business class flight to places like New York, Boston and Chicago. Plus, you can save even more on their incredible packages to both the USA and to Europe. 
That includes those premium business class flights and a luxury hotel stay. There's something different about flying business with British Airways, as I think you guys will know if you've ever done it. It's not just the seat that converts fully into a flatbed or the menu or the fact that you can watch the diary of a CEO on the in-flight entertainment system. It's the personal touch, the experts that make you feel relaxed and at home in the sky. And here's the thing, you've got until the 13th of November, so don't sit on it. Head over to BA.com to find your deal now. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. You wrote Rick Rubin's book, but you also, um, you wrote Kevin Hart's book. Yeah. What did you uh, learn about Kevin Hart? Oh man, I love like, and I, he's, he's one of, like, I learned a lot from him. He's really one of my like favorite people. Like what you see, he, what you see is what you get. He is who he is. What I learned is this, and, and this is like more of a business thing, but he has no resistance. He goes, he doesn't have resistance to every, anything, meaning that we have a plan we want things to work out and there's an obstacle. You had Ryan Holiday and the obstacle is the way there's an obstacle or someone's just being difficult to work with or whatever it is. He just takes the call, he deals with it, hangs up and he doesn't get into a story about it. And so I don't know if it makes sense because I haven't seen this like written anywhere as a principle, but when things go wrong or there's something he has to do that he doesn't want to do, he doesn't have resistance to anything. He just does it, rolls through it and moves on. And he doesn't think, I'm like one of the biggest actors and comedians in Hollywood. Why do I have to deal with this? He just deals with it. Doesn't procrastinate. He, he doesn't procrastinate. He gets it done. He does stuff himself. He doesn't blame others for bothering him. He really is like, and he's, he has a strength of positivity. He's, even if he's, I've seen him like, quote unquote, yell at his kids, but he's so positive and accepting. Interesting. When something happens, we get right into a victim place right away. Right away, we think, why me? Or God, why do I have to deal with this? This is supposed to be like this. And he doesn't have that story and he just does it. And going back to how we're raised, he was raised with a very strict mom and like, you know, and, and he applies that strictness into his life as a discipline and it works. And what about Rick, Rick Rubin? What have I learned? Man, I mean, that book, The Creative Act, uh, I originally didn't plan to write it. I just said, I'll do all the interviews for the book and you can find a writer because I don't want to, you know, we're friends and it's okay. Like you need to find the right person for your book. But I just want to do all the interviews because I want to learn from him because he's produced, what, everyone, Kanye, Jay-Z, like uh, Beastie Boys, Run DMC, like Johnny Cash. And he's so wise. And so I just wanted to learn from him. And this is what I, I think the main thing I learned and it's in the book. I'm not trying to make a book be something. I'm almost listening to the work and trying to hear what it wants to be. So I really learned to take the ego out of the creative process and surrender to the moment and understand there's something being called into existence that's not about me. And I'm just trying to guide it there and not get in the way. And it was a whole new way of thinking. It wasn't an artist-centered form of creation. It was an art-centered form of creation. Interesting. So yeah, if it, you're making a book or you're a podcast or whatever else, it's you kind of get you you out of the picture to allow the thing to become what it wants to become. Yeah. As an example, the truth was going to be 
like against monogamy and trying to maybe create a new form of mar- of relational and marriage that works better. Cause as you were saying earlier, it's all broken. But instead it became a book about healing my own trauma. And I sort of listened to that. And that's why maybe the book's impactful. Well, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. You said the first point of um, what they were calling a sex addiction was humility. Yeah. Or anything. And that's it. And it's really having humility in the face of, of, the universe. And there's so many other great points in that book. He, one of his great, one of his great lines in there is, uh, is about, and this is great, true, it's true of bands is business relationships. You know, people get in conflicts or do you have a, like a business partner? Do you kind of do it all yourself? Oh, I, yeah. I used to have a business partner in yeah. my previous business. Yeah. yeah. And he said, um, if you're disagreeing on things and not saying things the same way, that's great. Because if you both think alike in a partnership and want the same things and want to do things the same, then one of you is unnecessary. Hmm. So true. Yeah. So true. We we were successful in our business relationship because we were so fundamentally different. So there was never a crossover. Yeah. And we, we knew each other's responsibilities were, you could, a piece of work could come in and we wouldn't have to speak. We knew whose job that would be based on skill set. Yeah. It's great. And you're able to, to do that when you, and not everyone can do that. You know, they're like, it's, it's a hard thing for them. What's your mission now in life? Like you're, you've done so much. You've, you know, You've been successful in so many areas of your life. What are you aiming at now? Yeah, it's interesting. And it's funny, man. When I, when I was like a kid, when I was there, like in college, my whole goal, there was a newspaper called The Village Voice, which was like the cool newspaper in New York. I just wanted to write for The Village Voice. It was like, you know, the center of the art scene and the culture. And, and I started writing for them when I was like in my early 20s. And then everything, that, that was really my life goal. And then everything's been a bonus. And I really think in terms of projects, like I was thinking before your show, I was looking at your the podcast thing. And it was like the relationship expert, the sex expert, the mm. this expert, the number one this. And I was thinking, what do I do or what am I? Um, and I believe I have this saying like that don't brand yourself. Like let the world try to brand you while you keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. And I really just think in terms of projects. So I have no goal other than I want the next project I'm working on. I just want to do really great at it and share it and then move on to the next project that I'm really excited about the difficulty with labels is we pick them up when we are successful at something yeah and then we get stuck yeah i mean how many people do we know that say the health industry where someone's like they stake their health reputation on some something that's really true in the moment and now maybe the research has changed and then they're still they don't want to lose their audience so they're saying something that maybe they don't even believe anymore because we grow and we evolve and if you label yourself as something well man it's hard to move on and so we have to be really, I think we have to be really careful of that. Some people, by the way, there are certain people, they have just one mission and that's their mission and they, and that's great for them. And there are people like you and I who are very growth oriented, mm. who keep changing. Like you had one identity before this podcast, you have a completely new one. And I have no doubt that in like five, seven years, maybe that what's that saying? Seven years and all our cells recycling are completely new. Mm-hmm. You're going to be doing something equally amazing and unexpected and cool. What's that been? What was that like for you? Because your book was so successful, the game. It was so successful. So you become the game guy. Yeah. Yeah. And my, my thought was if I thought was, okay, I have to do something else that's strikes people so powerfully, become the whatever guy. <laughs> like, right, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it was still like, okay, what can I do? Logically, that's what I would yeah. think. I think fuck, I just have to do something bigger and then right. they'll know me for that. <laughs> right. And then there are other people who are still doing that, who are literally the people in that book, the game, who are out there still doing the same thing. And with a, with a book, it's not like a social media post where it just kind of falls off the timeline. Yeah. It's selling every day. Yeah. And you're really fortunate to be thought of as 
by other people as the whatever Yeah, because most people never even are known as anything. Yeah, so it's like I'm really grateful for it and that I'm like, how can I, What what's next? I, again, going back to Rick Rubin, his thing is as soon as you finish a work and you, his, once you share it, you just move on to whatever's next. Why was it so resonant, that book, The Game, in your view? I don't know. It's a weird thing. It was really out of my control. And it's funny because I really feel the book's, I feel like you get the book. Like to me, I was really writing about mail insecurity. Mm-hmm. Like it isn't a book about like, like you were saying, you were lonely, you felt disconnected, you didn't know how to connect. That's mm-hmm. what you said, right? Yeah, it was like getting, I mean, it was the, it was the girls at school. I, like I didn't know why that dude over there was really successful with them. And I was less successful than that guy over there. And I didn't realize that there was this whole kind of psychology about my like posture and how I could present myself. Um, and honestly, one of the big things that I came to learn, I don't think I've ever said this before, was at 18 years old, I was very unsuccessful with the women that I wanted. So whenever I wanted someone, I couldn't get them, right? It didn't mean I couldn't get, you know, pe- girlfriends, whatever. But whenever I wanted them, right. <laughs> I couldn't get them, right. <laughs> which is obviously quite, quite annoying. So there's like five people, girlfriends in a row that I wanted and I couldn't get any of them. I could get other people. I was doing fine. I don't want to make it seem like I wasn't doing fine. I was doing fine. Um, and I always wondered why that was. And then reading about the psychology of the game and understanding that there's this sort of social proofing thing and that I portray my value to people in everything that I do, how I speak, how I hold myself how desperate I am, whether I lean in in conversations and peck them and how to just be a little bit more composed. Right, which you do very well, by the way. Now I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe not so much then. Yeah. Um, and then I saw this really interesting thing, which was by uh, 25 years old, when I was actually secure in myself, my mannerisms all changed naturally. Um, and I fell more in line to what in the game you referred to as a natural. Yeah. As in like, I did the high value things naturally and then... I was successful. Yeah, because I think it was like a really shallow path to, to like self-improvement or self-esteem. Yeah. And it's nothing. And I think it's interesting. I felt like the, I think it did well, because I, I think of the culture thinks of it as like the douchebag's Bible or mm-hmm. something like that. And for me, it was really like about male insecurity and and that that feeling less than and, and then sort of uh, finding this very shallow path and also like, it's a path and go in the wrong direction. If you keep, like you did, you you the goal is to become a natural and let go of all those things. Almost like when we're someone's learning to play to paint or play tennis or whatever it is, they're following the form and then mm-hmm. they let go and step into who they are. Yeah, and, and people then get I, lost in that. But I didn't need any. Funnily enough, I didn't need any tips or tricks or strategies or little games, or whatever. When I was securing myself, yes. What's the book you'd write then instead? If like, if the goal is to get to a place where you're securing yourself, what is the, who, what kind of book would that be? Yeah. I mean, I think there couldn't be any other book because that was the path, A, that was the path I took. Yeah. And B, like somehow I thought female validation would get me there when it really needed to be my own validation. Yeah. Like how do we get, that's what I'm saying. Like, how do we get, what's the book on our own validation? (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think, I think it's, there's a couple of great books on that, but I also think there's no shortcuts to this stuff. Yeah. Like again, blessings to everyone who does plant medicine and I'm not against plant medicine in any way but I think like like you can't just I don't and again there are plenty of exceptions to everything I'm saying but I think like 
doing one ayahuasca like journey is not going to, you know, or doing one of the workshops that I do in the Hoffman process or doing anything. We all, we're this culture where we want these shortcuts. Um, but like, it's always that long cut. It was like the many year journey, per, the many year journey we went on mm -hmm. to, to figure this stuff out is where we got there. So I think maybe there's no other path other than one we took. And if it's a shorter path, we wouldn't have gotten there. That's exactly what I think. I, I wish, I think men, specifically like young disillusioned single men that are like looking for love and not having much success need now is, is a book about the long cut, yeah. the long route. There, like the long cut's a good, I mean, that's your next book, The Long Cut. Oh gosh, no. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm not an expert on the subject yeah. matter enough to write about it, but but like, what is, what does the long cut look like? Cause the long cut to self-esteem is like going to the gym, working on yourself, working on your mental health, being of service yeah. to society, friendships, emotional expression, those kinds of things. You just did the table of contents of your book. We're getting there. That's no, a, but no, I'm, I'm trying I, to figure I don't really out. Mean that. Like that list you gave yeah. is really great. And it's funny with my son who's in the, in the room, we have Sunday service days and we do something of service. Cause I think that's like that. I love that you mentioned that. Like we try to do something. So I think those, I think, uh, I think it's true that it's really a combination of stuff. And some people just look at one path, but it is a little bit of, of all those different components of uh, working on your psychological health, feeling like, why do I feel less than? Mm -hmm. What was the thing? What's great, what's great about like the stuff in your past, looking at your childhood is you see that it's not you. I always thought it was just me. Like somehow I'm not enough. Um, and then I realized, oh no, I feel like not enough because these experience, you know, my mom calling me all these different names, I internalized that and thought that's who I was. And I can say, oh, that's not who I am. And now I get to change. So it's nice to look back and see how these seeds were planted. So we can say, oh, that's not me. That was just some programming. And then I can run a virus scan on myself, right? And, and quarantine the virus. So I think like the long cut to self-esteem is figuring out why, what those reasons are and then working on them. And then all those different components you said of, I think the easiest step is being other oriented instead of self-oriented, um, being of service, instead of saying, I expect everyone to make me feel good. How can I make others feel good? And how can I make my, my job is to feel good about myself. There's a great line. I mentioned Pia Melody earlier, who's uh, this amazing therapist and author. Um, she uh, says like self-esteem should come from the inside out, not seeking it from the outside in. And so, like you said, going to the gym, I think doing something physical, you know, like doing something meaningful, uh, um, having friendship, social relationship connection, all those things, having, looking at those different areas of your life and keeping them full. And then looking at the things that are destructive in your life. How often are you doom scrolling? You know, how often are you comparing yourself to others? How often are you chasing things that you don't really want, but feel like you should want? And all those other things. Your son comes to you at 21 years old and says, dad, I'm struggling. I, I'm single. I'm lonely. Nobody's interested in me. Women aren't interested in me. Which book do you pass him? The Game or the Truth? Yeah, good, good question. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, first of all, he probably would never, I feel like, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like the game, maybe I give him neither. I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I sort of just talk to him and listen. Um, 
yeah, I feel like you almost have to read both to like get it because the game can be seductive in itself. But also the game's not a, the game doesn't necessarily end well, even within the game for the pickup artists. Uh, yeah, so I don't know which I give them. Maybe I talk to them. Those characters from the game, do you know where they are in their lives? Yeah. You do? Yeah, yeah. I talk, I, like I, I, I sometimes hear from Mystery who's out there doing his thing, doing workshops in Europe right now, I think. Yeah. It's funny, like a lot of people still doing it or going through just still being them, the doing them, right? Going in and out of relationships. And how, like, I think it's hard. How do we stop doing ourselves if ourself isn't serving us? So you will be writing a third book in this series. I know you've written many, many, many books, but a third installment of Neil's kind of journey in love. Yeah, or, or, or maybe not. Back to the idea, like it feels natural that I do the next installment because that's what I do. But how often are we trapped by what we've done before? Yeah. Like lately I've been doing these podcasts. True crime. These true crime podcasts. And I feel like I'm hopefully helping people and making a difference and storytelling in, in another way and trying to like help people locally. So, so maybe I don't do that, but I don't know. We talked about uh, labeling. Yeah. And, and that's kind of linked in with identity. What, what, do you, what do you want to be known for? And I think this is an interesting question because I think if someone asked me that, right. there's like a bullshit answer. Right. And then there's probably like the truth. Like if I could choose what people knew me for, I would be known for the businesses that I've built. Yeah. I, I, I guess these, the podcast as well. But for me, like I'm, I have a preference towards that part of my identity for some reason. Yeah. What about you? Yeah. I mean, I really like, I always, I always want the books to be known more than me. Like I like, you'll notice in the books, my picture is not on them or anything like that. I don't like, I really want the books to be known. So we just, I guess I would like it like, oh, that's a new Neil Strauss thing. I can't wait to read it or listen to it or watch it. I just, I just want to be known as like, oh, if he does something that's worth noticing or reading or paying attention to. So maybe that's as a writer or a storyteller or something, but, but really like I'd rather the projects be known, like the new podcast series I'm doing, which is different than the rest. Like in my head, I'm just thinking, I just want it to be awesome and people to be like really excited by it. Like, and I, I think I'm just always thinking about the next project and I can't wait for it to come out and like have an impact. And When's it coming out? Uh, I think January. And I'll tell you about it offline. It's crazy. Really? Yeah, it's crazy. Because when I saw you were doing a true crime po podcast, I thought, does that mean you're like reading out stories from cases that were, you know, a couple of years ago or something. Yeah. Okay. I'm a big true crime fan. It's the only thing I listen to. Oh my to. God. Okay. So I don't listen to any other genre. I don't even listen to this podcast. Right. <laughs> um, we have a closing tradition on this podcast where the last okay. guest leaves a question for the next guest, not knowing who they're leaving it for. The question left for you is describe a moment in your life when uncertainty was dominant. How did you navigate this uncertainty and how did it change you? After 9-11 <laughs> and then after Hurricane Katrina, I think we had a certain thing in Americans that we felt we were just Americans and not touchable or something like that. Nothing bad happened. And then when 9-11 happened and we responded in the way we did as a country and felt like the whole world hated America and terrorists and, you know, you had yellow, red, all these alert levels. And when Hurricane Katrina happened and some bodies flowing down the street in an American city and here was a disaster the government knew was coming and there was nothing we could do about it. I think I felt this 
existential uncertainty, which is like, which everybody feels now, by the way. Mm. The whole world feels it now because no one trusts the system. No one trusts the government. But this was like, it felt new then. It's crazy how now everybody feels this way. But then certainly I felt was like, fuck, you can't rely on the system to protect you. You're on your own. Is that why you wrote the book about prep, preps? Prepping. prepping yeah, you. that's how I wrote, I wrote the book about prepping. And then what I did was... Prepping is basically preparing for the worst possible day. So like doomsday or I don't know, like a world or a nuclear bomb. So you start stockpiling in your house stuff that will mean that you can survive on your own. Yeah, learning kind of survival skills. So I guess the way I felt with that, so I felt that existential uncertainty in the way I did that was doing the things that would allow me to feel safe and give me like peace of mind. So the idea is when I feel the uncertainty, I try to take the steps that give me peace of mind and are constructive, not destructive. Sometimes it feels like we're in such an uncertain time then people do things that are giving them peace of mind that are destructive to themselves or others, like all, a lot of hatred and division and things like that. Um, but recognizing, I think, that that uncertainty maybe comes from within. So what I did, I guess, I guess, I guess, like the answer is when I feel the uncertainty, I go on a journey that becomes a book, whether that was the game, uncertainty about dating, relationships to the truth, or uncertainty about the world was emergency. And are you, are you still a prepper? Uh I'm prepped, <laughs> but, but at the same time, I also recognize there's only so much you can prep for. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't know when this, these disasters are coming and, and we don't know how it's going to come or what it's going to look like. We had a pandemic, so we think we're preparing for the next pandemic, but the next thing that's going to happen is nothing we're ready or we're, we're concerned for. So I think the best thing you can do is be like mentally prepared for uh, the unknown and crisis situations. But, uh, but I did get like a second passport and all those things in case I need to get my family to safety. <laughs> so, so, so second passport maybe is the answer. Neil, thank you. Thank yeah, you so thank much. You. Thank you so much for writing The Truth because this book has certainly helped me to, I said to you before we start recording, there was a, a, a part of this book where you describe a bird in a, in a cage and that's exactly how I felt. And then you go on to reframe that notion to, to make me understand that I'm not trapped in a cage and that I am consciously making a choice to be in the relationship that I'm in. And at any point, if I wanted to leave, I can. Yeah. And for me, that idea in this book is part of the reason that I've been in a wonderful, successful relationship for the last four years that has enriched my life. So thank you so much for that. Your writing style has always been something I've admired so much. And even when I became an author, I remember that being front of mind, that you were able to take me on these incredible journeys. And in through the journeys, I learned something. And that's how I've aspired to write. We can do a whole nother podcast another time about your writing ability, because that is profound and evidenced by the fact you've written Rick Rubin's book, which is behind me and Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart's book and many others that people don't know about. So thank you for the inspiration. It means a lot to me. And thank yeah. you for your generosity. Today. Thank you. And I'm excited for where your journey takes you and have the next conversation on parenting. I look forward to it. Yeah. Thank you. A quick word on Huel. As you know, they're a sponsor of this podcast and I'm an investor in the company. After years and years and years and years of work, and literally I remember being in the boardroom about two to three years ago at Huel when they were working on this product. Finally, Huel have nailed the complete nutrition bar. Honestly, it's been one of the most popular conversations at Huel for the last three years. How do we make a bar that is nutritionally complete, that has 27 minerals and vitamins, and that is low in sugar, taste good? I would have more of them to show you had I not eaten them all. I mean, they arrived at the office yesterday and my team just uh, scoffed them all down. And the last one, you can see it's actually ripped here because 
as one of our team members went to eat it, someone shouted, no, we need that tomorrow for the Huel ad. Check it out. I know people are loving Huel Greens at the moment because you guys have just plastered my DMs asking for Huel Greens in the UK. But in the meantime, before Huel Daily Greens comes to the UK, you've got to check out the bars they've just dropped because they are delicious. Do you need a podcast to listen to next? We've discovered that people who liked this episode also tend to absolutely love another recent episode we've done so i've linked that episode in the description below i know you'll enjoy it